Welcome back to the program here Monday to Friday, starting at noon Eastern, 9 Pacific. Across the country, Jeff Merrick along with you. Thanks so much for joining me today. You know, it is rare that uh, I think this is probably the first time this has ever happened in the history of the NHL, where a coach who was selected last overall in the NHL draft gets to coach a player who was also selected last overall in the NHL draft. Paul Maurice will coach Patrick Hornquist uh, next season as uh, Paul Maurice takes over the bench boss duties for the Florida Panthers. Paul Maurice joins me now. Paul, how are you today? I had, I'm good, man. That's, that's some good work. Cause I had no idea. About that. <laughs> no idea. Cause so, I, I don't tell anybody. I don't tell anybody I was drafted last. Now it works for Hornquist, right? Cause he's had an unbelievable <laughs> career. He can say, yeah, look at me. Last player drafted. I worked my butt off. Uh, I was like, so that year it was like Wendell Clark was first overall. And I yep. think that's an appropriate gap between he and I. I should be last, <laughs> Wendell should be first. That's fair. The, the, you know what? There were some, like, that was your uh, last overall. I mean, that was a 12th round, but there's like, there's some, like, the, albeit like there's some tough guys in there, but there's some 12th rounders that, that played some games. Kenny Baumgartner yeah. uh, played some games. Rudy Poshak played some games. Uh, Tommy Shodin, like, uh, David Williams played yeah. some games as well. So, like, there was some – even getting into the yeah. 12th round, John Ferguson, who yeah. didn't play but is still very much involved right. in the NHL as an assistant general manager with Arizona. So there's some, there's still some names there, Paul. Yeah, I, I had no chance, man. Absolutely no chance. <laughs> and you know what? You know what's good? Okay, so here's how it goes. So all of us guys, like, like that didn't play, which is me and every other Canadian guy, right? Maybe, maybe mm. you played a little junior, maybe you played a little college you, Somewhere in the back of your head, even even though I know I wasn't good enough, there's always that, well, maybe I could have. Maybe I could have. And I'm on the ice in Hartford, and Sammy Kapanen took off in front of me. Mm. And I went, oh, my God, he's so fast. There's <laughs> no way I could have played in this league. So I, I didn't have to harbor those ill feelings or feeling like I felt, yeah, just not good enough, just not even close, not even close. Does that not? Because I mean, you've told me that Sammy Kapanen um, story before. How that was your welcome yeah. to the NHL moment. Like right. I the, the whistle goes and boom, Kapanen takes off and shot out of a cannon. And, right. You know what? What planet are we on? Have you right. found that each year that you get deeper into the NHL, as players get younger and more skilled, etc., that you're finding these welcome to the NHL moments almost every season? Like, wow, I didn't know a player yeah. could do that with his stick, with his feet, with his whatever. Do you, do you find that, Paul? Absolutely more so. And, and you know what? Like, it happens in the game, but it's different when you're standing on the ice as a coach. And there's, and there's all different kinds, right? Like Blake Wheeler turns a corner in front of me. So what I mean, turns a corner, he, he's on a regroup and he's mm-hmm. kind of going sideways backwards. And then he turns his, his in full flight and he, he shaves me. He, he goes by so close to me. I cannot believe a man that big can move that fast. And you get that. Oh my God. First he could have killed me. And then the other thing is, <laughs> I wonder what it feels like to skate that fast. Right. And then, mm-hmm. God, some of the things they've done with their hands, and, and I think it's in practice because some of it's kind of, you know, they're trying new things out, like a pass, you know, some of the backhand passes, some of the things they can do. I think, and I kind of cherish that, Jeff, a little bit because it goes to the, the heart of my whole hockey experience. As I'm truly a fan. Like, I, I'm still just, and it happens in games, you're on the bench and you go, oh, my God, that was good. And you, you, know, you go down and you go, so you see that? And I go, yeah, we saw it. we're all looking at it. Like, you get just... The, the talent of these guys, and when they, it gets refined to that elite level where you see the very best of the best do something yeah. that uh, only they can do after years of greatness, it, it's awesome. 
You know, I'm because you've seen so much and you've seen so many different players. I'm curious what your answer might be on this one, Paul. Um, had a conversation a while ago. Uh, Jason York and I were talking about Mark Savard and talking about right. he had there, there was one very particular skill that he had that I don't think I've seen anyone do better. And that was the ability to take um, a hard rim around the boards on his backhand spin it over to his forehand and fire a sauce pass effortlessly to the slot. Mark Savard did that on the regular every, and it I would watch it and anyone that would watch it, you just, you just marvel at how like, that's a really hard play to make at any level. And he's making it at the NHL on the regular. Is there one thing that, you know, a casual hockey fan might miss, but every time the player does it, you know, you as a coach goes like, I can't believe this guy can do this. And nobody is recognizing how great and how hard that is. I, for me, uh, there was a player, you know, Josh Morrissey, um, his ability to turn the corner back from to go backwards to sideways. And, and it, and it happened in a game, God, it was a playoff game. And I think it might've been St. Louis, but I I think it might've been Nashville. All I know is he was beat and there was no way he was catching this guy. Like you can feel it. The, The mismatch of speed that I'm looking at through the neutral zone and he opened up and drove like, like it almost like his butt was about a foot off the ice and just, it was an awesome thing. I'll give you another, and I know Josh, I'll give you another one. And it was Marion Hosa. So I always viewed Marion. And, and, and do you remember back when he was in Atlanta and he would take the puck off the goal line, step out and roof it? Yeah. So there was this, there was a stretch in the NHL where the goal line guy actually became a threat before he never was, or, or they just leave him net front. Anyway, he gets in there. So I have this vision of these hands and it was just incredible how he could score these goals. And I have him at the world cup. And he's, you know, toward the end of his career, really fine, fine gentleman. And he was in the offensive left corner, and the play was breaking out. And he put his head down and caught a guy at the defensive right blue line. And I've never seen a man that size move that fast. Hmm. Um, I would say Mario Lemieux. Okay, Gerald Biddick, we're killing the penalty. (laughs) <laughs> Gerald Biddick has the puck, turns, he's got lots of time, and he takes a full slap shot. Mario's leaning on the boards above the half wall, yeah. probably because he doesn't want to get hit with the puck. He's gonna, he's just going to assume that Gerald's going to rip this thing off the glass, and, he, and he's smart. He doesn't want to get hit with the puck. Yeah. Gerald turns, and it's four feet off the ice, and it's an absolute howitzer, and I'm telling you, he reached out, knocked it down with a stick, and it was on his blade when it hit the ice. So you can imagine, I'm on I'm on the bench. It was in RD zone, so I'm I'm about 15, 20 feet away from it. I've never ever seen anything like it, like the hand-eye coordination. Yeah, truly incredible. That Mark Savard play, you know, is something that we that concept picking the puck around the boards, killing the spin, and opening them up to the next play is something that's part of our development camp, and we will do it mm-hmm. over and over and over because it's so difficult to do. It's one of the hardest things, and I, I always marvel at Savard doing that. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Hosa because, and you know the old saying, you can't give a great player a bad pass. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone receive a pass better than Marion Hosa. I don't. What you can throw it anywhere at him, throw it behind him, throw it in his skates. Like he picks it up like he's playing lacrosse. Like he just grabs it and he doesn't right. break. Strike. I don't know that, and maybe you can think of someone, but I don't know that I've seen anyone consistently take you know garbage passes better than Marion Hosa. It doesn't right. matter. Just throw it near him, and Hosa could take it and right. not break stride. That was the, the one thing about Hosa that I always marveled at. 
Yeah, special, special. You know, and just one of my favorite experiences in my entire career was that World Cup because I got to meet a bunch of guys, players that I really didn't know. Zidane Ochera is just an incredible champion. What a what a what a find! But Marion Hosa would be another one that just not shocked me because I didn't expect greatness. It's just the level yeah. of greatness as a man, as as a worker, as a, as a teammate. You know, he said, we got, we got a decent team, but we don't have a lot of Stanley Cup champions on that team. And, you know, we're, we're working on the power play. And, uh, you know, hey, would you mind going here? He goes, I'll, I'll go wherever you want. I don't care. And, and generally mean it and go there and make it work, right? Just wonderful, yeah. wonderful experience. Uh, well, first of all, Paul, congratulations. Uh, great to see you, you back in the NHL. I, I think that, you know, when, when, when you stepped away from Winnipeg, and I'll, I'll be honest, like, I expected coming out of COVID and listen, we saw, you know, Matt Niskanen call it a day coming out of the bubble and hasn't come back and it still affects the Philadelphia Flyers to this day. I, I kind of expected more people to make a decision similar to what you did. And I'm sure a lot of people thought about it and said, you know, I need, I need to step away from me here that this has been a lot for all of right. us. And I, I need to, I need to step away. I'm, I'm curious at what point were you comfortable saying, I think I'm ready to go back. For me, I, I need. I critique my performance pretty strongly. Always have, and I felt that I know that I wasn't as good as I needed to be for that team. It, it was. It was. You know, you push as hard as you can, and rarely do you get to run eight, nine years in Canada unless you win a Stanley Cup. You know, look at the number of coaches that have changed mm. over in, in that old Canadian division. There's a cost to it. Yeah. But for me, it was, I wasn't as good, and that bothered me. It could really broad, but that I couldn't move the needle on that team anymore to the point. So there's two pieces to it. The first piece is the Winnipeg Jets are better. Their fans are better. They're, they're beautiful people, uh, wonderful, wonderful organization. And I know I'm letting them down because I can't get it done. And the second part of that, that is bothering me tremendously. Now, where COVID fits on this, I, I couldn't stand that year with no fans in the building. It was absolutely the least fun I've ever had in hockey. So I'm kind of, at the end of the day, it's not about me. The truth was the Winnipeg Jets need a new coach. It's just a fact. And, I, and I'm right about that. And then, so when I stepped off that, I was at peace with that part of it. And I truly did not reach out to anyone. Normally, if, if you know, there's a lot of openings, people aren't sure what you want to do, you just make a call. Hey, I'm interested. Didn't make any calls. I got a few, and, and I said, you know what? I'm not the right guy. I don't believe I'm the right guy there. I'm not ready. But this or this opportunity, um, and for you know, for family reasons and for a whole bunch of reasons, I got excited. So I, don't, I didn't know Bill Zeal. Um, hadn't spent much time. Um, I know a few of the people that work here very, very well, some of the ex-players that I've coached. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, Jeff, like 10, 15 minutes into my meeting, I'm fired up again. I'm all jacked up. I'm talking hockey. And then one of our interview days was 10 hours. And, and wow. if we hadn't run out of coffee, we probably could have kept going. Mm-hmm. So now the, answer, the long answer to your question is that's when I knew, right? I, I, I knew Florida made sense. I liked their team clearly. Um, but it wasn't until I went through the first interview section of this that I went, oh, my God. I want, I want back in. I want this team specifically, and I want to do this job. Well, it's going to feel like you're driving a Ferrari. 
Like you, you look at this team, and this is elite, regardless of what happened in the second round against Tampa. And I know there were struggles at times in the first round against uh, against the Washington Capitals. But this is like you're driving a Ferrari here. There's Barkov, there's Huberto, there's Ekblad, there's Bobrovsky, there's Knight on the horizon. Like there's like real good, you know, young players. There's one of the more underrated players in the entire NHL, and Alexander Barkov there. Um, when you when you go through the lineup, I know sometimes coaches can look at this and say, you know, I, I like this because it's a challenge or I like this because this looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, how do you look at coaching the Florida Panthers? I mean, all the pieces are there. Like, everything's in place here. Right. So you'll, you'll – I hope I don't take too long to answer this question, but you've been in the game, Jeff, an awfully long time. So you have that historical perspective. When you think of the Detroit Red Wings when they came – kind of in the mid-90s into their greatness. It's a very similar situation. Lots of skill, Eiserman, Fedorov. And yeah, they added a bunch of really important pieces, but they could score and they had they were producing points and they were having big years. But it wasn't until the change kind of happened, you saw Eiserman's point total drop, but at the same time, you saw Stanley Cup champions. You can almost say the same thing, certainly for the Tampa Bay Lightning or, or most recently the Pittsburgh Penguins. Just go back, but go back to 2009. Pittsburgh wins the Stanley Cup. They beat us in the conference final. And we are all talking about this as a dynasty team, right? You've got mm-hmm. Crosby, Malkin, Stahl down the pipe. These guys are all in the prime. But it's hard. It's hard to get to that next level and then, of course, stay at the next level, which is why it's so amazing what Tampa's done. So the base of all this is they have a tremendously skilled team, but they're frustrated. They're frustrated with their playoff performances and then something changes, and that's that's what I see here. The change is more of an addition, right? You're not pulling back on skill, guys. I'm, I'm not putting mud tires on a Ferrari, as you said. You know, <laughs> you, you want to make sure that... No, but you want to make sure that you're tuned into being able to take that Ferrari out on wet roads, and that's what playoffs is. It's a different game. The rush game disappears. There's so many more battles to the net front. It's broken play, counterattack, drive it right at the net. It's all... And it's frustrating. So all of those teams that I mentioned, and this is very true of the Tampa Bay Lightning prior to, you know, they had had some great runs, went to the finals, missed the playoffs with a hell of a team. And then they, they get to that next step. The rush game is no longer their only calling card. They can generate it a bunch of ways. So that's the offensive part. And then all of a sudden, all of those teams are way harder to play against defensively, and it's gap. So I think about the teams that have beaten, you know, a team that I coached and ended up winning the Stanley Cup. And we'll go back to, you know, and you got you got a good memory. Go back to 2002. We lose to, we lose to the Detroit Red Wings in the Stanley Cup final. Yep. Now to put it in perspective, I think there's 10 Hall of Fame players on that team, and that doesn't count Scotty Bowman. But it's like yep. it's an incredible team, and they beat us in four. We, the series is tied one-one, and we lose the game on a bad pinch in triple overtime. But we're right there. But they didn't beat us on skill. They beat us because they were harder to play against defensively than we were, and they were incredibly skilled. And I, and, I, and I think that that was true of the 2009 Pittsburgh Penguins. They were that good. When you look at the difference in the St. Louis Blues from January 31st to their Stanley Cup run, we beat them 8-4 St. Louis in, in St. Louis one night. Patty Line had five goals, and they were all from the slot. And you're going, how is he getting this wide open in the slot? All of a sudden, they've changed. So it's an addition here. We've got a Ferrari. We've got to teach that Ferrari how to drive just as fast, but on really, really wet roads because playoff hockey is different than regular season hockey. 
There were, just a quick fact check here, 11 people in that series in the Hall of Fame. Nine Red Wings yeah. players, Scotty Bowman and Ron Francis with the Carolina Correct. Hurricanes. But nine, nine Red Wings players, whether it's Chelios or Fedorov and Larianov and Lidstrom, it's a, right. it's, a, it's, it's, it's a murderer's row. You know, it's interesting you it bring up Tampa. So just, it, let me just, so one thing to yep. fully appreciate there, the starting six guys they had on the ice at the opening pace off of game one, their payroll was bigger than my whole team's. That's how the caps change things. <laughs> how you you can sell the you can sell the us against the world here, the scrappy underdogs here. You can oh, sell that God. story, Paul. Well, I did I did I didn't even have to try to sell that. That was just a fact. <laughs> oh, um uh, I'm glad you mentioned Tampa too, because you know, Tampa, it seemed, and I, I, I'm curious about this because you have a highly skilled team. And sometimes, and we saw this with Tampa, sometimes you can find a team can fall in love with its skill. Like, I can't tell you how many times I would watch a Tampa Bay Lightning team and it would be that one pass too many because they can make it, but it was the wrong play and it, and it busted a play. It was a team that was in love with how good they were. And it wasn't until they stopped making that extra pass that they started to turn into this version right. of the Tampa Bay Lightning that we see now. Like, how do you take a team that is as skilled as yours, the Florida Panthers, and say, okay, not that you want to put a put the brakes on it, but let's not right. let's not overpass be just because we can here. You know what I'm saying, Paul? Right. So they became a far more direct team, and, and you're very you're 100 percent right on that. So there has to be some open conversation about certain sacrifices that we're going to sacrifice. Just just pull up Steve Eiserman's points from when they weren't winning to when they weren't. So he he takes a drop, a significant drop in his points because he commits to the other side of the puck heavier and harder, and all of a sudden now they start winning. And that's going to be, and, and you know, it's going to be a challenge, right? Like, so 122 points, uh, I believe, like 13 of those in overtime, three on three. And if you look at just regular wins, regulation wins here, we're, Florida, we're in the middle of the pack in the Eastern Conference. But now you've got, you know, you leave the league in scoring, that's our game. But that game disappears in the playoffs, and we have to understand that. So what we have to do is build our game from training camp out to be prepared for the style of game that's coming and value it. And so there's certainly some sacrifice. But at the same time, I'm going to be real careful on the offensive side. I agree with you. Like the seam pass is a beautiful thing, especially when it goes through nine other guys. Uh, and it's in the back of the <laughs> yeah. net. It's a wonderful thing to see. I want to see it as a fan, but you know that play is not going to be there. That part of the offensive game will be second on my list. It won't be the first thing that we deal with. The first thing that we deal with will be our defensive gap and how we move as five to kill that. And I'm going to give them lots of room offensively, and and we'll start working on that later. But it's not about fixing a whole lot of things here, Jeff. And you want to be careful about, you know, they've got confidence here, and they've earned that confidence. And and I'm not going to be the guy that pulls that back. You know, I I, am... I just got a, a, about a minute left, a couple of minutes left here with the Paul. I, I, I want to ask you about, like, listen, we're talking today about the Nazem Kadri goal and too many men right. on the ice and line changes. And I'm thinking this morning, like, hey, I've got, I've got you coming on the show today. So I pull up the stat about you and Hornquist. And I'm thinking, okay, so I want to get into this with Paul a little bit. And I remember a piece that you did with Ron McLean 
on a segment on Hockey Night in Canada called Think Hockey, and you did a thing right. about sw- swapping out swapping out players in the offensive zone. And I'm I'm wondering because you mentioned Scotty Bowman earlier, and Scotty with the the Montreal Canadiens in the '70s. I mean, they would practice line changes on the regular. I know at various times various right. coaches have done that with your team. How much time do you spend on line changes? Like by the time you get to the NHL, how much time do you actually spend on practicing line changes, Paul? So. I would almost uh, – so when I'm in Toronto, we spend time on line changes because we were lazy as hell coming to the bench. So that's one part of it. You, you know, mm-hmm. you, you see that. We call it the one-footer. Guy decides he's changing. He gets up on one foot through two zones to get to the bench. So that's one piece of it. Your team's got to come to the bench freaking harder than that. Like, the good teams come to the bench hard, right? Yeah. No one foot and on the ice. Okay. Now, some teams – and this would be true of uh, Tampa Bay. I, I, this is just a theory of mine. Any of the wing lock teams in the NHL, the non-trapping teams, you need basically a system to line change so you don't open your game up. Right? The function of the neutral, that neutral zone defense. So the answer to your question is we would actually practice second period or basically in, in, in the playoffs also overtime line changes. We practice line changes in the second period. It's the most difficult line change. And we would practice it. And it was a function more of our neutral zone had to be, we had to be specific about how we come on and off the ice. Most of what we would say before I put a wing lock in, when we're talking about working on our line changes, it's, you know, get off your one foot, you know, get off your ass and get off the ice, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that's more of, of, of the, the detail that we put. But I would, I would suggest that, Believe it or not, the Tampa Bay would be would have practiced line change. I talked, I talked to you know great length Pete DeBoer about that idea because he at the time was running a wing lock, and they they would practice it as well. So there are some teams that practice it quite regularly. Fascinating. Listen, uh, I know you're going to do great uh, with this new Ferrari you have in the driveway. Uh, enjoy the rest of uh, the Stanley <laughs> Cup playoffs. It may only be one okay. game. We'll 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 see. Um, thanks as always okay. for stopping by. Congratulations okay. on on the new gig, and we'll chat soon, Paul. This has been great. Yeah, th- thanks very much, Jeff. Look forward to talking to you again. There he is, Paul Maurice, the head coach of the Florida Panthers. Uh, big news this week, uh, catching some by surprise, and that is someone who, who very much sounds like he's enthused about the. Like, I can't help but thinking, you know, I go, I go back to that, you know, December seventeenth uh, surprise press conference where Paul Maurice announces that he's stepping away, and it really seemed as if. You know, Paul needed time away from all of it, and it happens to everybody. I'm actually quite surprised, as I mentioned to Paul in the interview, I'm actually quite surprised that it doesn't happen more often um, in hockey, specifically in the NHL, just because the demands of an 82-game season are so overwhelming. And I brought up the example of Matt Niskanen coming out of the bubble, and there were a lot of people, I'm sure, that would have thought about, okay, I'm just cooked here. Like, I need some time away. And I really thought that coming out of that experience, there would be more players that say, or that said, rather, I need some time away from all of this. So, A, I was, to be honest with you, I was glad that Paul made that decision, that Paul Maurice made that decision back in December, that if he needed it to to step away from the Winnipeg Jets for, for whatever reason, um, and he said that you know he felt that he was insufficient as a coach. I can't help but thinking as well. At the same time, uh, coaching in Canada is is really hard. It's you know I used to always make the joke that the the two hardest jobs in Canada uh, number one is prime minister and number two is starting goaltender for any of the NHL teams in Canada. And I think number three's got to be head coach. 
uh, of any of the teams in Canada as well. There's just an insane amount of pressure that's on you. Um, but he sounds re-enthused. He sounds charged up again. Um, I got to know Paul initially uh, when I was working with the Toronto Marlies uh, in the one season that, that Paul Maurice was uh, the Marlies head coach. This would have been 2005, 2006. I'm trying to think Dallas Aikens would have been one of the assistants there. Joe Patterson uh, would have been one of the assistants. This is a team that had... Oh, players like Johnny Paul was on the team. Bates Battaglia was on the team. Um, Brendan Bell, Ian White would have been on that team. Chris Newbery, Brad Lieb. It was a good team. It was like a 600, 600 hockey team. Uh, and on road trips, I'd sit up at the front and, you know, I was working with John Bartlett and I didn't do a ton of road trips. Um, but the times that I did, I always, you know, cherished conversations with Paul Maurice just because he, He's one of those guys, and we talk about it. You know, Bruce Boudreau always calls himself the hockey lifer. Paul Maurice is the same way. You know, they're just some guys that you get the feeling that they're looking for every single excuse to talk about hockey in every situation because that's the environment they grew up in. That's the water they've swam in their entire adult life, and that's where they are most comfortable, and that's where um, they find themselves taking the greatest pleasure and taking the greatest joy. And that, to me, has always been... Uh, Paul Maurice, and I learned a lot just by listening to to Paul on the bus and his theories or Paul around the rink and theories on hockey. Anyway, um, very much wish uh, Paul Maurice all the best uh, and best of the Florida Panthers uh, with their new head coach. And now the Battle of Florida between the Panthers and the Tampa Bay Lightning just got that much more interesting and pretty neat conversation about practicing line changes as well. Bowman would do it all the time. Like Scott Bowman, like that Montreal Canadiens team, the Scotty Bowman coach, the dynasty team, before they gave way to another dynasty, uh, the New York Islanders, they did a lot of things great. And one of the things that I look back on now, and I'm still amazed by, is how small their centers were. Like you look down the middle of the, of the Montreal Canadiens, none of those guys are particularly big, thank you very much. Uh, some great players, very large blue line led by Larry Robinson. Um, in net, of course, you know, the giant Ken Dryden, uh, but uh, small down the middle. And that was a team that would practice line changes. I mean, Scotty Bowman as a head coach, uh, I know he wasn't at times the most popular coach with his players, uh, but there was always, you know, there was always a saying that um, players hated Scotty Bowman 364 days of the year. And then on day number 365, they got their rings. And that was very true. He wasn't the easiest coach to play for. And there are a lot of people that weren't exactly big fans of playing for Scotty Bowman. But he was so specific. He was so particular about every little element of the game. Uh, And that includes line changes, which a lot of teams at that time just took for granted. But one of the great subtle things that Montreal did really well in that era, and it paid off, Reliant changes. You know, we talked about sneaky skills that players have, whether it's Mark Savard, you know, peeling the puck off the boards on his back end, whether it's Marion Hosa, you know, taking passes in his skates, no problem without breaking stride. One of the great skills that that Habs team had was practicing line changes. We are talking a lot about line changes today. I'll probably ask Jay Woodcroft about line changes as well. Uh, the Edmonton Oilers coach, Jay Woodcroft, joins me in moments here. Quick break. Uh, back with Woodcroft in a moment. The Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet radio network. 
everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the program. I want to thank the uh, Florida Panthers for making Paul Maurice available. And thank Paul for, uh, for stopping by the show. The, uh, the coaches hour here of the program continues. Jeff Merrick along with you across the Sportsnet radio network. Uh, Jay Woodcroft is the head coach of the Edmonton Oilers. To no one's surprise, the extension recently announced. Uh, Jay Woodcroft joins me now. Jay, how are you today? I'm doing good, Jeff. How are you today? Uh, I'm well, uh, I think this was, and it probably felt different for you. And I know there's a process that, that has to happen, but it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that, uh, there was a fit there, uh, between yourself and this, uh, this organization, certainly these players as well. And it seemed at least on the outside looking in Jay, that this was a mere formality at season's end. Did it feel that way for you? Well, um, you know, I felt good about, uh, the body of work over the four and a half months and into the playoff run and, and whatnot. And, um, for me, at the end of the season, you want to go through the process of meeting with your with your players and, and uh, following the right steps to wrap that year up. And then uh, once that happened, then uh, that was when kind of the negotiations occurred between Ken and my agent. And uh, they were able to come to a quick conclusion and, uh, I'm certainly uh, very grateful. Uh, I feel very humbled and uh, privileged to to continue with this opportunity to be the head coach of such a proud and historic organization like the Edmonton Oilers. And one that historically has been, you know, quite successful. And we think of, you know, the glory years with the Stanley Cups and we see, you know, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and other players on this team. And uh, I think we all look at it and say this team, you know, teams exist in sort of Two, you know, two stages: either potentiality or or actuality. Um, when you look at this team, knowing what the potential for it is, like how far along do you think this squad is to have to getting to the place where we say this is no longer a team of potential, but this is a team of actual? Well, um, I think when I when I took the job over I think it was February 10th or February 11th one of those days there uh, I, at the time the team was in a tough spot it, it was I think we were six or seven points out uh, of the playoffs um, I met with Ken Holland and, and Ken gave me a very simple direction which was uh, to win and to make the playoffs and uh, I didn't have to worry about anything else and I actually shared this story with um, a few players uh, in some exit meetings and whatnot, and I, I shared with them that, you know, for me coming up into that situation, it was actually really freeing because I didn't have to worry about anything other than following that direction. I tried to use my eyes and my experience to make the best decisions possible, and in the end, uh, we had to navigate a really hard schedule. Um, uh, but we found a way to just keep getting better every day. I thought we took good steps this year. Uh, it's not easy uh, to get a team uh, playing to its fullest potential. It's not easy to play hockey you know, into the m- middle of June. Um, so those are all good things, but I don't think anybody is um, self-satisfied with, with just winning two rounds. I think we have 
a bunch of individuals on our team who are motivated motivated by team success and motivated um, by trying to to win it all. So. For our team, for our group, I thought we made good strides this year. Um, and certainly we're going to evaluate every part of our game, every part of our organization, and we're going to do our best to prepare ourselves um, for the beginning of training camp and uh, to arm ourselves with the tools required to get through uh, a really tough 82-game schedule. Long, long story short, I guess, mm-hmm. is to say that we like where our team is um, but there's a ways to go yet. Um, Jay, I'm, I'm curious about your conversations with Leon Dreisaitl, uh in the playoffs. And, I mean, amongst performances with injury, uh, certainly in this era of, of hockey, that's that's going to become folklore. You know, Louis DeBrusque referred to him as, you know, the best stationary player in the NHL. The fact that he was able to remain productive uh, given that he was playing through a high ankle sprain. And we always, listen, we all saw him getting to the bench and, and the, you know, the wincing on the bench as he would get on and what he looked like. And, I mean, I was in pain watching him. Um, what were those conversations like with uh, with Trisel? Because on, on the one point here, on the one hand, to your point, you know, the, the job is to win, but also as a coach, you want to look out for the the overall and long-term health uh, of your athlete. Leon's not going to say, I want to be out of the lineup. He's going to want to say that, you know, send me out there. It doesn't matter. I'm like Monty Python's knight. I'm okay. I'll, I'll still be productive. And, and he was. I'm curious about the nature of the conversations, if you could share some of those highlights with us. Sure. Yeah, and I have a uh, long-standing relationship with, with Leon that goes back uh, to his time as a young player in Germany. Um, so I, I've known him for a long time, um, was an assistant coach with him early in his career, and then obviously now in this stint, uh, the head coach of the team. For for Leon, um, I think what it was, was it, it was a constant dialogue of, of um, managing what he had to work through in order to be to get his body to where it needed to be to to perform. So obviously, um, no unnecessary practices uh, for him. Um, it was constant communication, not only with our our trainers and doctors, but also with our strength and conditioning staff to make sure that he was getting what he needed and managing. Um, managing the injury, uh, what he what he did, and what in the way he performed, as you said, in my opinion, that's the stuff of legends. Like that, that's what playoff hockey is about: is people overcoming, you know, certain uh, moments of adversity. And for him to get hurt the way he did in in round one in game six, how he finished that game, first of all, uh, and then how he continued to navigate his way through the playoffs in in great pain and discomfort. You know, he he showed me a lot about himself and and certainly um, displayed a drive to win that I felt was inspiring. Were there any conversations that went along the lines of, Jay, if you even think about taking me out of the lineup, don't. (laughs) Did did Leon sort of lay lay that one out for you? Uh, You know what? I think... uh, there was no question. I knew if he had his equipment on, he was playing. And so I wanted to protect him. uh, And I wanted to make sure that I understood the medical ramifications by uh, being in communication with our our head athletic therapist and, and our doctors, Uh, they felt they were in a good spot. I think the, probably the funniest conversation might've been 
in that game six on the bench when the injury occurred and he kind of skated back to the, the bench and tested it out in a TV timeout. And he sat, he sat on the bench and the trainer comes over and whisper in the coach's ear. And he said, you know, like Leon, he's got this going on and we want to go take a, a look at him. And I'm looking up at the clock and I'm like, I don't want it to be on camera. If he leaves the bench and everything like that. <laughs> and Leon, uh, Leon uh, looks up to me and goes, if I leave the bench now, I'm available in the second period. And I said, sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Get going. Uh, I'll deal with the, the video aspect of it uh, in the questions after the game. So, um, you know, he took control of that situation. And obviously he has a huge impact on our team. What he was able to do in that Calgary series, um, you know, it was beyond impressive. What I, you know, that injury affected some of the things that we did as a team, some of the, you know, because we had predominantly since uh, Dave Manson and I came up from Bakersfield, we predominantly separated uh, Dreisaitl and McDavid. Um, but with that injury, we felt it was it was best to, to put him on the wing to help him manage that. Uh, we felt putting him in on his off wing was to our benefit um, and his benefit. And, uh, you know, while it affected some things, we still found ways to, to win a big series against Calgary, and we got some good experience in, in round three against Colorado. But um, his personal performance, as I said, that's the stuff of legend. Yeah, it certainly was. I mean, I, again, like it was, we all knew what he, we don't know the specifics of the injury. I think we all thought high ankle, like, you know, you look at it, and then anybody who's ever gone through it, would say the same thing. I can't believe that he's doing this. It was, to your point, a remarkable performance by Dreisaitl. Um, let me ask about Evan Bouchard. I, I really like this defenseman uh, a lot. And one of the things that I'm really impressed by um, is his ability to get pucks through from the point. And, and as you know, like you're a coach, I don't need to tell you this, is, you know, it, it's not necessarily the hardest shot that's the most effective from the point. And it seems as if, you know, Bouchard has that shooting threat ability and it's just getting it through. Lidstrom was obviously the best uh, at doing that. Um, and you've known him going back to the American Hockey League as well. Uh, where do you see Jay, uh, Where do you see Evan Bouchard's game right now, Jay? I think it's in a good spot. I think um, he had a, a, a good year, a, very, a, a good learning year for him. I mean, his foot, it was his first uh, full-time duty as an NHL defenseman. He had, he had some experience last year, but he wasn't an everyday player uh, in Edmonton last year. As you said, I, my history with him goes back. I was there uh, for his first uh, you know, foray in Bakersfield. Obviously saw him work his way up to the big club. Um, this year when we came in, uh, Dave and I, uh, the, the team was in a tough spot. It, it had struggled uh, from December 1st to the beginning of February. Um, Evan's personal game wasn't where he wanted it to be, and one of the conscious decisions we made it as a coaching staff was to reduce him a little bit. We re- reduced some ice time for him. We went with 7D for a period of time to protect the, the whole group and to spread the ice time out amongst the many. And I thought that gave him a chance to reset or recalibrate. And we ended up um, putting a shutdown pair with Nurse and CC together, and we put Bouchard with 
um, the unbelievable veteran Duncan Keith. And that became a very steady pair for us as we worked our way through our, our busy schedule. Um, his numbers speak for themselves. I think he is an underrated uh, passer. I know that the best players in the world want to play with him because he puts it on their tape at full speed. Um, and as you said, one of his best qualities is his ability to get a shot through from the point. It's almost like his shots have eyes. Uh, eyes to get through traffic, eyes to get through goaltenders. Um, he's a young defenseman that has, has taken a step. I think there's more there. Um, and he's continuing to work at his craft. He's a great kid. He's a serious pro. And I think we're just scratching the surface of his potential. Let, let me ask you about Yessi Pugliarvi. Um, you know, I can recall specifically uh, having conversations with people uh, in and around the organization when Pugliarvi was first there. And, you know, I, you know, there was a communication issue between the player uh, who still hadn't learned, uh, you know, so wasn't fluent in, in English. There was, oh, he's a drill buster and, uh, you know, how that goes over with with players. Uh, always doing that long drag on the shot. And like, there was a, a ton of criticism of, of Pugliarvi initially. Where do you see his game right now? Because I'm in that group of people that believe that the boxcar numbers don't tell the whole story about Pugliarvi. But what does the coach think? Uh, well, first of all, he's a, he's a young hockey player. So, uh, um, you know, he's had some experience in North America early in his career. He went back to Finland uh, to work at his game and develop confidence. He is somebody um, who he has good skill. I think uh, in February when Dave and I came up from Bakersfield, he had gone through a really tough stretch. He started 21-22 uh, very well, and then he had gone through a tough stretch, much like the team as a whole, um, and it struggled to score, hadn't scored much in the previous 16 games. One of the first things that I wanted him to do was feel my belief in him. Um, so uh, the first game we put a line together of, him, Hyman, and McDavid together. And in those first four games, uh, when the new coaching staff came in, he had two goals. And unfortunately for him, in that fourth game was against Anaheim at home, he got hurt. And it wasn't a typical injury. It was it was a little bit of an odd leg, lower body issue uh, injury that required a lot of time. So I think he missed six and a half, maybe seven weeks. Um, and you know how it is. You you return um, when when all of a sudden now it's it's the last 15, 20 games of the NHL schedule. Teams are fighting to get in, and you've missed a big chunk of time. It took him a little bit of time to get back up and running again. Uh, for me as a coach, I have belief in him as a player. I think he's a good hockey player. I think he's a young hockey player that hasn't um, – reach his full, fullest potential either i think he does well with good players um and when his confidence is at its highest um i, I want to ask you about a, uh one, one more one more player specifically and then we'll we'll let you go what was it like what was it like coaching evander kane this season i mean i know he's a very you know polarizing figure uh in the nhl it seemed as if the fit was hand to glove between the player uh, and the Edmonton Oilers this year. I know the Connor McDavid lobbied to bring in uh, Evander Kane. Um, but from the coach's point of view, how was Evander Kane for you this season? I really liked Evander Kane. I thought um, something underrated about him is his his on-ice habits, his, uh, his ability to 
make plays under pressure, go to hard areas to score, to stop and not fly by hard areas. I was I was really impressed with him, and obviously he had a great finish to to his year with us, and you know he carried that into the playoffs. He's a really effective player, and you know I know we're working hard to bring him back. Listen, um, oh, actually, I, I lied. I have one more for you. What is the what is the secret with with Dave Manson? We keep hearing, oh, he's the he's the defense whisperer. He can you know finish up defensemen, get them ready for the NHL. What is the uh, what's the secret sauce here for Dave Manson? Well, you know, I didn't know Dave. Dave was my first hire as a head coach uh, when I was took over the bench in Bakersfield. And uh, what I've learned about him over time is how principled he is, how he carries himself on a daily basis, his presence. Um, he's somebody who I feel not only was a great player. I mean, he played over a thousand games as a as an NHL defenseman. He was tough as nails. He was an oh, yeah. All Star defenseman. He he experienced a lot of different um, things as a defenseman. He was a first-round pick, and he worked his way through his career. And at the end of his career, he was a journeyman uh, player on some good good clubs and, and whatnot. So he had a great career. That's him as a player. I felt at the time that we had some young D-men coming into the organization that that would really help those young D-men. But I have a ton of respect for Dave as a coach because – when his career was over, he didn't get airlifted into an NHL opportunity as a coach or anything like that. Yeah, he went true. back. He went back. He coached youth hockey in Prince Albert. He raised his family. He um, he rode the buses in the WHL for a long time with the Prince Albert Raiders. I hired him. He came to to Bakersfield, California. These are not exactly like the bright lights of the NHL uh, <laughs> places, right? Like so, and, and so he rode the buses and he learned the pro game. Um, we did some winning together along the way, and certainly when when I was going up to Edmonton, there was no other person I was bringing other than Dave Manson. I joke around, and I, I've said it to a lot of the Edmonton media, but I joke around that. Uh, I, I view him as my left tackle. He's the guy who takes care of my blind side. He's the guy that puts out a lot of fires uh, while they're embers. Um, and you just talk about someone that I have the utmost respect for. I know he makes me a better coach, and he's a very talented coach in his own right. And yeah, to your earlier point, when he played, he was legit raw bone tough. Uh, as a player. Uh, listen, um, congratulations on the extension. Uh, I don't think it surprised anybody. It seemed, as I mentioned earlier, that this was a fit uh, that worked right from the beginning. Uh, have an enjoyable off season. I look forward to seeing you back behind the bench of the Oilers next year. Thanks for doing this, Jay. Much appreciated. Hey, my absolute pre- pleasure. Have a great day. Jay Woodcroft is the uh, head coach of the Edmonton Oilers uh, contract extension, three-year extension, um, made public and released this earlier this week. Uh, we thank Jay Woodcroft and the Oilers for making him available. So one thing I wanted to get in here before we wrap up the program, quick little story. We've been talking a lot about line changes and what happened last night uh, with the Colorado Avalanche, the Tampa Bay Lightning in overtime and the Nazem Kadri goal. I'm very sensitive about changing anything about line changes. Uh, and here's why. And I've always felt that it's something really very particular and sacred to the game of hockey. Um, I remember having a conversation in 2005 with someone by the name of Eli Gold. Now, Eli, you'll probably know, you know better as someone. He's a great American broadcaster. He does a lot of uh, college football, and he is the voice of NASCAR as well. 
and he was also the very first play-by-play voice of the Birmingham Bulls of the World Hockey Association, the Toronto Toros, uh, when the whole Bassett situation happened and they moved the team, they moved him from Toronto to Birmingham. And I remember having a conversation with Eli about what fans in Alabama like the most. This is a virgin hockey market, and I expected Eli to say, oh, they love the... The, the the fights and the bench clearing brawls or they love the uh you know the big slap shots and the long hair and you know the the whole aesthetic of the WHA and he said you know what the fans loved more than anything else I said what's that Eli and he said they loved line changes especially wholesale line changes and I said what he said yeah fans would stand up and applaud or there'd be like a gasp from the crowd when five would go off and five new would come on while the play was still going. And he said, why do you find that so shocking? And I said, well, I don't know. I've never seen anyone applaud line changes before. And he said something to the effect of, well, you've grown up with just, just being part of your sport. But think about where we're from. We've never seen a sport where you allow you know, people that are involved in the play to change while the play is still going on. That doesn't happen in baseball. That doesn't happen in basketball. That doesn't happen in football. You have to understand, we saw this in Birmingham and we said, what the hell is that? And that's actually really cool. And it would get like wholesale line changes would get ovations. And it always stuck with me. This idea of there's this, you know, there's a number of areas that differentiate hockey from other sports, and some are more obvious than the others. But I'll put line changes on there as well. Like while the play is going on, that is something that is very unique to hockey. And I'm always sensitive about doing anything in and around. Now, it can always be tweaked. And was that a long change? As I was that a late change, of course it was. But I just gives me a chance to talk about how line changes are something that is so unique and given you know anyone who's listening to the show right now we've taken for granted our entire lives because we've grown up in it but it's a really special part of the game and enjoy it it's a small tiny thing but enjoy it thanks to jay woodcroft thanks to paul maurice thanks to nick kiprios and thanks to you for listening merrick show back tomorrow